you've got your Bibles, I'm going to ask that you open up to 1 Peter. It's in the Old Testament, I mean the New Testament, almost all the way in the back book of 1 Peter. As you're turning there, I want to give you a little bit of background of what's happening. Uh, Peter was writing to Christians, and the church had been struck and scattered, and this new ideology, uh, Jesus had not been risen too, too awful long, and uh, people were becoming Christians by the hundreds and by the thousands, and the New Testament church was growing exponentially. And so this whole idea to, to walk away from Judaism and to leave that way of life and to embrace the, the truth that it's not about keeping rules, but about maintaining a relationship and being in right, perfect harmony with God the Father, that it, you did not have to be born into this, that it wasn't through sacrifices except for one, it was through the sacrifice of Jesus. And so uh, the church is being persecuted, Christians are being judged, and really, they're, they're, if you can imagine being in first century, these Christians were facing persecution and judgment by three main areas. Number one, they were falling under the Roman government, and they, this time they were being ruled by a very cruel leader at the time by the name of Nero. They were facing persecution by the Jews, as Jews knew that this was a very growing threat to their way of thinking, their way of life, their religion, and just really the way of government and the way that they did life. And they were also facing a lot of persecution by their own families. That if they were to become a Christian, that they were not just, it wasn't just this group or this group. Or the, it literally, they were surrounded by people that were persecuting them. And I guess you could say very quickly that it would, it would seem like they didn't have hope. Um, hope is one of those things that, that, that people long for. And you know when you have it, and you know when you don't have it. Being up here at the church, we, we have the opportunity to, to minister to people, not just on Wednesdays and Sundays, but people literally come in our doors all the time that need hope. Uh, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, Wednesday, you, you name it, all the time. And I, this week, I had the opportunity of, of meeting with a lady, and I invited her. I hope that she's here this morning. Uh, and ma'am, if you are, I want to tell you that Jesus is your hope. We sat out in the atrium and we talked and she said, every morning I wake up praying that my day will be better and I go to bed hopeless. And so we, we went through the gospel together and she is a believer and just things, just life has been thrown at her numerous times, numerous times. And as we sat there together and we prayed together and I walked back up to my office, I, I just honestly was heartbroken. And I thought, the truth is, we're surrounded by people on a consistent basis by people that may never tell us that they feel hopeless, but that they do. We're, we're, we're content with just exchanging pleasantries and walking by the same people in our work or our neighborhood and never really stopping and checking on them, like really checking on them. And some of them feel absolutely hopeless. Peter's writing this letter to encourage believers, people that have, have followed the way of Christ for some time, but he's also writing this letter to new believers. He's saying, listen, that there, is, there, there is a hope, and while times may seem bad, and while times may seem difficult, and while struggles may be imminent and at our doorstep, there is a hope. If you've got your Bibles in First Peter, I'm going to start off reading in verse 13 and 
Um, we'll go a little bit into chapter 2 and skip a little bit. Let's meet together at verse 13. It says, therefore, preparing your minds for action, be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not conform to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on, the fa- on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited by your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like the lamb without blemish or spot. Jump down to verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another and earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed, though living and abiding through the word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Father, you are good. And I pray that all of us would get a taste of that today. For those of us that have known you for a long time, that, Father, this would be a re-upping of our commitment to you, to walking in the fullness of your spirit for people that may be far from you and not know you, that, Jesus, they would stop searching for answers in anything else because you are the answer and the hope of the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, first thing Peter tells us, he says, listen, you need to be holy. I want to give you a couple of misconceptions about holiness. Because when we think about holy, we tend to think maybe you're a Gregorian monk, right? And you live up on this mountain, and, and there's this, this, this jug of water, and you wet your hands, and you just rub the top, and you just have these, these incantations, these chants, like, me, 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 and just like rubbing it and hitting a bell, like a, a ringing a gong, and, and sitting there in this giant red robe. If that's holiness, I don't want that. Like that's just that, I don't see that. It, it, that's the kind of the picture we think of is that you have to dedicate yourself to a life of prayer and a life of living in a cave and rubbing the water jugs. But when we look at God's word, we see that holiness is completely something different. We don't see any of that lived out in the life of Jesus. One of the first misconceptions we see about holiness is that holiness is in your appearance. That you have to look a certain way. That you have to sound a certain way. When I started coming to church as a middle school student, we were over in the other building in what is now the Fellowship Hall. And I remember coming in and, and sitting down and listening to Brother Michael preach. And, 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 and Pastor Michael has been my pastor since I was in sixth grade. I came to this church for a year and a half before I met Christ. And so for me, what I thought a pastor was and what a pastor looked like and what a pastor sounded like and what a pastor dressed like was Brother Michael. And I tried so hard. 
He's got perfect hair. And his suits always look nice, and his jeans are pressed, and he's got a good voice, and he doesn't have a lisp like me. Like, I just, I tried really, really hard, and, and, and he, he, honestly, for me, he embodies what a pastor is. But after a couple of years of me trying to sound like someone else, and dress like someone else, and be like someone else, I just came to the conclusion I'm not even a real good me, but I'm a terrible somebody else. <laughs> that God hasn't called you and I to be anyone else other than you and I with Jesus all over us. Now, while we want to present ourselves in a way that's not going to detract and we want to give honor to the Lord and things like that, holiness is not whether you wore jeans or slacks this morning. Holiness is not whether your socks even match this morning, because I know some of them don't. <laughs> Holiness is about pursuing the Holy One and allowing Him to impart Himself on who we are. Holiness is not, it's also not either happy or holy. You don't have to choose, okay, I guess I'm going to either be happy in life or I'm going to walk with God. Because if I walk with God, clearly I'm not going to enjoy my life. Because if I, if I walk with God, then I can't do this, and I can't do this, and I can't do this. You see, a relationship with the Father and following after Jesus is not about a list of what you can't do, but rather about a life of what you can do. That you experience the fullness of the Holy Spirit and the fullness of God's plan as he smiles on you in your life and blesses you because of your obedience. It's not either or. It's, these are not two separate ideas. And it doesn't mean that if you're walking with Christ that you're not going to be sad sometimes. It doesn't mean that if you're walking with Christ that sometimes it's going to feel like your life is falling apart. Because the truth is there will be times when you are walking with Christ and when I am walking with Christ and it feels like we are all alone, sealed up in a tomb and our prayers can't leave where we are. But keep hoping. We keep pressing. Another misconception about holiness is that it's about our vocation. That if I'm going to be holy, then I have to be a preacher. And I have to be a pastor. I have to be a missionary. I have to devote my life to the things of God. And, and if I am not um, showing up or working at a church or giving all of my money to Compassion International or, or to this or to that, then surely I, I, I must not be holy he said, I'm so grateful that God doesn't call everyone to be a pastor, but he does call all of us to live on mission for Christ. I may have shared this before, and I know that this, this person doesn't want me to mention his name, but I'm going to. Um, there, there's a plumber in our church. His, his name's Mike Littleton. I'm making eye contact with you right now. Um, about a year ago, we were having some plumbing issues um, at my home, and, and when you have multiple kids, it's just amazing what goes down that. But anyway, I, I, I remember thinking I was busy before I had kids. I really do. Like, I'm tired. Like, people tell me they're tired when they don't have kids, and I just, that's cute. <laughs> I bet you are tired. Do you only get four naps this week? That's uh, At any rate... Um, I called Mike and I said, Mike, uh, I, I, need, I need this address because it's beyond my pay grade. I don't know how to fix. Can you come over? He said, sure. So he comes over. I'm sitting there. I made an appointment. He walks in my back door. 
And there's some guys across the street cutting down some pine trees for my neighbor. He walked in. I said, hey, Mike. He said, hey, Stephen, who are those guys? I said, what guys? He said, the, the, the tree crew. I said, I don't know. I guess they're just tree cutters. He started walking out. I said, where are you going? He said, I'm going to tell them about Christ. And he closed the door. And he walked out, and I just remember thinking, I need that. Like, that was a huge encouragement. Mike, you are a huge encouragement to me. And there are other men and women in this church that you live your life that way. That you're not just a plumber who's a Christian. You're a Christ follower who's cleverly disguised as a plumber. That we're living on mission for Christ, that we can live and pursue holiness as a, as a single mom or a single dad or a stay-at-home mom or dad or a businessman or a banker or a teacher. That Christ being in our life pre, is preeminent above our vocation. That our calling supersedes what we do for a living. That we make a life out of not what we earn, but we make a life out of what God's called us to do. You've got your notes. I want to encourage you to take and follow along. The first thing we see is that in verses 13 through 14, it's important for us to remember not who we are, but remember whose we are. That we belong. It's not about making a name great for ourselves. It's not just about showing up and, and getting a participation trophy. That we remember whose we are, that we belong to the Father, that we have been ransomed. Listen to what John Piper said. I think it's in your notes. It says, you are never without Christ, never far from Christ. He is never at a distance. He has said in Matthew 28, 20, I will be with you to the end of the age. And now we know how close he really promises to be. That it's not just about our name because we have been, as the Bible says, bought with a price. And the life we live is no longer the life we live in the flesh. But we live for the Son of God who paid a ransom for us. It's not about our last name. I remember my grandfather used to say this to me. Every time I'd go into his house, he would say, Stevie, don't get a black mark against your name. He was saying, listen, don't do something so heinous that it follows you. Don't hurt your name. And see, those of us that are Christians, more than living for our name, we understand that if we do something, that if, if we break the heart of God and break fellowship with him and, and cause division among other believers, we don't just harm our name because that's secondary. But firstly, we harm the name of Christ because we represent him. And there are times that I don't always act like a Christian. I'm sure that you never face that. There are times I don't have Christian thoughts when I'm in a hurry because I am in the center of my throne. I've got to get exactly where I need to be, when I want to be, and if you are on my way, if I can pass you and not make eye contact, I'm going to do that. We have to remember that we belong to the Father, that we represent him, and no matter any type of hostility and the political climate that's in our country, no matter who wins, Jesus is still on the throne. He's not running around heaven wondering what he's going to do. All of this is in his hands and it's under control. Remember whose you are. This, this, this verse, this, this word in verse 13, therefore preparing your minds. Uh, the original language, it's the idea of rolling up your sleeves. 
And better yet, it's, it's a passage that you'll see throughout, kind of a theme throughout scriptures. It's called girding your loins. Now, I know if you don't attend church regularly, when you hear a phrase like gird your loins, that, that just doesn't roll off the tongue. It seems very strange and, and obtuse, but it literally means to prepare yourself. And in the first century, what, what it meant to gird your loins, it would have meant to pull up your robe and tuck it in your belt so you can run as hard as you possibly can. The pursuit. First Peter 4, 7, we see it just a, a few chapters later in the verse. It says, the end of all things is hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, be sober-minded. First Peter 5, 8, again, it's the same phrase that's used in the pr two previous chapters. It says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And Paul, Peter is telling these followers, he's saying, prepare yourself. Be sober-minded. Don't just float downstream through life. Be on the lookout. Like literally like a watchman of a wall. Not just guarding your church, not just guarding your home, not just guarding your family, but literally guarding your very heart. The Bible tells us to take every thought captive. Every thought. That we wouldn't just allow the garbage of this world to contaminate us and to cause us to be less useful for the kingdom. If we believe that Jesus is the hope of the world and that hope is rising, then we have to set our minds on the one who is hope. The second thing we see is not to live for secondary things. Verses 14 through 16 says this. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. I would say the majority of the times that I meet with people and the majority of the issues that I have in my own life come up and arise and are present because we begin to live for things that are secondary. We begin to choose what is the immediate over what is the eternal. We've got to have what we want right here and right now. And all too often, we don't give thought to what God's best is for us and God's design and the idea of being patient and waiting on the grace-filled, loving, merciful God to provide all of our needs. And so you and I try to hurry the process, help God, and end up taking shortcuts. And when we take shortcuts in our faith, we ultimately exclude the Father from the equation. And it's not an act of faith. Last time I checked, God doesn't need our help. He needs us to be faith-filled. That we wouldn't live for the secondary things in life. But that we would be patient and loving and long-suffering, waiting on the one who's the giver of all good things. Verse 17 says, And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each other's deeds, conduct yourselves with a fear throughout the time of your exile. These churches are, 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 are is, is called, they're being dispersed. It's the churches of dispersia. They're, uh, they're, they're, they're going out and running, and it seems like the flock has been struck and that they've been damaged. And Peter's calling me saying, listen, as you go, don't forget what you've learned. 
actually what's happening could be a good thing. One of the things that we say in Sherwood's story, and which we'll have today at 11 o'clock in the chapel, and if you're thinking about, you know, what is Sherwood about, or I might, might want to join, I'll meet you over there at 11 and talk to you about it. One of the things that we say here in our church is that we pull from about 25 different communities in and around southwest Georgia, from Tata and Poland and Sasser and Lee County and Dawson and Americus and Sylvester and Camilla and people drive in to come here. That, it's you. And the beauty of that is that when we disperse on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights and Wednesdays and throughout the week, that God is sending his people into the harvest. That God calls us to live on mission with great intentionality. That God would see us in these areas that literally it's like missionaries moving out, spreading the gospel everywhere that we go. Is that we have to learn to trust in the eternal God. I remember when um, I remember when I was planning on asking Rebecca to marry me, and I was so nervous. I mean, I was—I thought she was going to say yes, but I was still very, very nervous. And I'd saved up this money to buy her a ring, and it wasn't very much, but it—it it, it was a lot to me. And uh, I remember dropping her off um, here at the church. I worked downtown for the city, and she worked here at the church in the media department. Dropped her off for lunch, and I was heading back down, downtown, and I was driving down Whispering Pines. And um, this car was stalled out in the middle of the street, and so there was no car coming. So I decided I was going to pass it, and it was, a, it was a dotted line I could pass. And when I got around it, this other car in front of them was turning. So I T-boned this car and jumped the curb and totaled my car. And my car was already a wreck anyway. So it wasn't like the insurance company was going to fix it. It was just like trashed, and it was my fault. It just totaled my car. I remember going to work and finishing out the day and going home that night. I was still living at home with my mom. I'm, I'm like 24 at this point. And I remember laying in bed that night thinking, I've got to use all of this money that I've saved to buy my fiance a ring to buy another junker car. And I literally remember laying in the bed and just crying, just crying, just heartbroken. And, you know, there's so, I have so much respect for people that can cry and they look still like humans when they cry. I'm an ugly crier. I mean, I'm not that good looking of a guy anyway, but, like, when I cry, it gets a lot worse. And then when, when you get one of those cries when you can't breathe, you're like, uh, 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 like one of those. You've all done it. We've all had our heart broken like that. Well, I am back in my room, and I'm trying to, I mean, I'm a man, I'm a grown man, but I'm crying like an eight-year-old Girl Scout, right? And I've got my face in my pillow, and I'm thinking, I've saved all this money. And I remember my mom coming back there and rubbing me on back, scratching my back, just being a mom and telling me it was going to be okay and her praying with me. And she said, God's got a plan in this. Just trust him. And I can't remember exactly how it worked out, but she was right. God completely met those needs and my wants. We have to learn to trust in the eternal God. Peter's saying, listen, I know things may be bad now, but keep your eyes fixed on the cross. Keep your eyes fixed on the one who has given you vision anyway. 
Keep your eyes fixed on the lover and the pursuer of your soul. Trust in him. He is eternal. What's happening in your life right now, what's happening in your life later, what's happening in our life right now will pass, and he will come. As Christians, as the body of Christ, we cannot allow ourselves to get bogged down with the junk of the day. We have to trust in the eternal God. Fourth, God calls us to live in your high calling. Look at verse 22 through 23. It says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, that God has called us as believers to love one another. And the greatest way that we can love one another is to forgive one another. I've said this before, and I'll say it today, and I'm sure I'll say it again. The reason that we forgive is because we've been forgiven. That forgiven people are forgiving people. And we see clearly in the Bible that if we stand in opposition of someone and we're holding their wrong over their head, we're choosing not to forgive, we cannot be forgiven. Because no one has done more to anyone else than we have done the Father, and yet when we seek forgiveness, he gives freely. I remember years ago, our pastor saying this, that leaders give other leaders the benefit of the doubt. I believe that Christians should give other Christians the benefit of the doubt. There are times, a lot of times, that I need grace. And I know that there are probably times in your life that you need grace. But what, what happens is we judge other people by their actions and we want to judge ourselves by our motives there are times that we just need to throw someone a grace chip like we need to give you grace because there are times i'm going to be begging for grace chips we need to love one another because if the body of christ is not united and if the body of christ stands in division the world has no chance we are the embodiment of who the Father is, that we are called as ambassadors, we read in 2 Corinthians 5. We are called as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, literally sent out for him and by him. And if we can't get our stuff together, and if we live as opposition, and we choose not to love and to be long-suffering with each other, then the world gets a very inaccurate picture of the grace and the love and the mercy of God. I heard someone say years ago that anytime we break a command of God, we're not just breaking a vertical dimension, but we also break the ones that are horizontal. You see, if I'm out of fellowship with the Father, I can't be in right fellowship with you. And if you're out of fellowship with the Father, you can't be in right fellowship with others around you. That we have to be right before the Father. That when we sin, we don't just sin in a vacuum. It affects the whole body. We need to practice greater patience with each other and not allow the media and the political process and all the garbage that's happened in our country divide what the Holy Spirit desires to keep unified. That the banner that you and I are under, first and foremost, is the banner of Christ. That God is preeminent and he precedes and supersedes anything else my heart's desire. The fifth thing that we see is 
Peter's telling us to preach the gospel to ourselves. Look at verse 23. He says, since you have been born again, you remember where you were when you were saved? You remember? You remember how old you were? You remember the thoughts that you had, maybe the fears, the questions? I, I remember sitting in, in, in a small breakout room in Panama City at Edgewater Beach Resort as a rising eighth grade student. And somehow in that moment, I knew that everything had changed. I didn't even know what that fully meant, but I knew that everything had changed. Peter's saying, remember, you've been born again, not of a perishable seed, not just from, from your parents, because this, this, this Adam suit, right, as Charles Lowry likes to call it, it will pass away. But the soul inside of us will live forever in one of two places, a very real place called heaven or a very real place called hell. We have to preach the gospel. We have to remind ourselves, and you were here for a fresh, um, Pastor Daniel Simmons um, uh, talked about being a covering, having a covering. He said, sometimes I'll go and get my sheet and put it over my head and look into the mirror and say, you are forgiven. You are a child of God. You are, belong to the king. He said, I'll talk myself up just repeating the truth from Scripture. Sometimes when I ride next to people, you can tell that they're not singing and they don't have a Bluetooth and they just look a little cuckoo. You look crazy when you talk to yourself. But there's a difference between being out of your mind and literally quoting God's word to wash over your spirit. Because there are times you need that and I need that. We have to preach the gospel to ourselves. Listen to what Jerry Bridges said. should be on the notes and possibly on the screens. Deep down in our souls... We must get hold of the wonderful truth that our spiritual failures do not affect God's love for us one iota. Just pause. Isn't that beautiful? That God loves us because of who he is, not because of our ability or inability to keep the rules. Hmm. That his love for us does not fluctuate according to our experience. We must be gripped by the truth that we are accepted by God and loved by God for the sole reason that we are united to his beloved son. That God is a loving God, that God is a forgiving God, and even when we foolishly choose sin and self, he still loves us and he still pursues us. And he's still, like in the prodigal son story, he waits and he looks for us to return and he runs to us and in all of our filth, he embraces us. The sixth thing we see is that God calls us, Peter's telling us to feast on the word. So since you've been born again, or excuse me, um, like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Um, it, it's been, been a little strange, honestly, starting over. Our youngest daughter, Kayla, is nine months old, and um, it's just, it's been a blessing, but it's hard. And, and some people have asked us if we're done, and we're done. And then if you ask why, will you have a kid if you want another kid so bad, okay? We're done. But one thing that I notice is that when Kaylor gets ready to eat, nothing else matters. 
nothing. Doesn't matter if if I'm in the shower or if Becca's got armful of groceries or if we're dealing with boo-boos on our other kids' knees or whatever it is, nothing matters. It is time to eat and she is going to shout from the rooftops and cry her little eyes out. She's insistent. <laughs> she's, see, I was a plant. I trained her real well. <laughs> Thanks, Kaylor. But she's insistent, and she gets to a point where she cannot wait any longer. It's this picture of that Psalm 42, one verse. It says, as the deer pants for water, so my soul longs after you. And we sing that song, and it's so harmonious and melodic and this beautiful melody. But the truth is, is that when you look at the original language, it literally is the deer. If he doesn't get to the, the water source, he will die. He is passionately trying to get to the water source. And if he doesn't get the nourishment that he needs, he simply will not live. He will not make it. When was the last time that you were so famished and hungered for the presence of God that you felt like that? When was the last time that you and I got to a place where we had to be with Jesus and nothing else would satisfy, like nothing else would do, that we would long for the deep truths of God's word, that we would hold on to the tenets and the pillars of Scripture, that we would want to be in his presence more than we want to watch a ball game or more than we want to go on a vacation or more than we want to spend time with anyone else. But we long to be with the Father. We're to feast on the word. And the last thing we see is that Jesus is better than anything this life has to offer. And I know that that's broad, and I know that that's sweeping, and I don't mean for it to come across that way. But all of us are in a pursuit. All of us are chasing something. All of us are waiting on something. And all of us have a sense of hopelessness in our lives. Maybe it's a loved one. We're not sure if they're going to survive. Maybe it's a job situation where paycheck to paycheck has run out and you literally are days away. Maybe it's a situation where you have tried to keep all the rules and do all the right things. And it's kind of like the, the story of the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19. When you run to Jesus and you feel like you've done everything just right, you've done what God's asked and you've lived a good life and you've tried not to get caught up into the, 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 just the momentary pleasures of this world and of the flesh, and this is the question you ask, and this is why you lay in bed at night and you wonder, what do I still lack? It's hope. And it's not hope that your situation will work out. It's not hope that you'll get a raise. It's not hope that your wife will come back. It's not hope that the disease will go away. It's hope that Jesus is who he says he is and has done what he says he will do and will do what he says he will do. That Jesus will come back. That he is the great sustainer of life. That he has a plan for your life. And even in the midst of what you feel like is hopelessness, Jesus can speak truth and peace and joy into that situation. I don't know where you find yourself this morning.
But can I tell you, as a church, we're not here to grow the biggest church in this town or this region or this state or in the country. We want to be a church that offers hope. And there's no hope outside of the person of Christ. And if you find yourself here this morning and you know that you need Christ, Maybe you've walked away from Christ. Maybe you've never had a relationship with Christ. Can I tell you something? Don't let the enemy lie to you and pride keep you in your seat from you responding to the hope giver. This place will erupt. This place will cheer. You are around people that have been broken and are still broken, and we are in pursuit of the only one that can fix us. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I'm going to ask if you would join me by standing. Maybe you're in here today and you know that you need Christ and you're tired of trying to make it all by yourself. You're running as hard as you possibly can. And you're tired of running. I tell you, you can stop. And the last person you need to run to is Christ. Maybe you're in here today and, and, and you don't have hope and, and you wonder if, if the situations in life are going to work out. If he or she are going to come back. If your child's going to be healed. If you're going to be able to keep your home. And for the most part, life is good, but there are areas that feel hopeless. Wave the white flag of your heart of surrender. And don't give up on life. Give that all to the person of Christ. And allow him to do what he does best. Allow him to be himself in your life. In a moment, we're going to sing and I'm going to pray. And at the end of that prayer, our pastors are down front. And we would love to talk with you. We would love to pray with you. We would love to answer questions that you have and help you find Jesus. We celebrate that, and that's something that we see almost weekly. But if you know, and you're tired of pretending, you're tired of asking that question, what do I still lack? Come to Jesus. Give your life to Christ. Recommit yourself. Confess that you are the ones that are gripping the will of your life, and give over lordship to Christ and allow him to reign and rule. Father, I'm asking in your name that you would move freely and that, Father, you would help us to see the world around us through the lens of the gospel, that you would help us to see people the way that you see them, that you would help us to love people the way that you love them, and that you would help us to remember what we have learned, that we would not give up the things of the word in exchange for the lesser things of the world. Father, you are great. You are our hope. And you are our salvation. Father, I pray that if there's anybody that needs to make a decision today, that they would stop running from you, and today they would run to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.